Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Fleeing the War, Basque Refugees in Ireland. This show looks at a story related to the series Partisans. It's about the life of a Basque family, briefly mentioned in that series, the Galisteggies, who moved to Ireland in the aftermath of the bombing of Guernica. The podcast follows what their life was like here in Ireland. This show was produced and researched by Ignacio Irigoyen and Stuart Redden. I was delighted to be asked to narrate it and I'm very grateful to be given permission to share it with you now. It includes interviews with the historians Kyle McCrenner and Brian Hanley, along with several members of the Galisteggi family. It was first broadcast on Near FM in April 2020. Now just to let you know, there won't be an episode next week. I need to take a little time to research and prepare upcoming shows. The next one, which will be out on Monday week, will probably be on what it was like to live on a pre-famine diet. For that, I'll be eating, or at least trying to eat, that diet, which involves 6 kilos of potatoes in a day. That will be out, as I say, on Monday week. If you are a show patron, the exclusive patrons-only series, available at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast, will continue as normal. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Irish citizen of Basque origin going to be made a plaything between de Gaulle and Franco? The question we have just heard was raised in the Doyle on the 8th of November 1962 by Clonna TD Joseph Byrne and put to the then Taoiseach Sean Lamas. However, to understand the response from Sean Lamas to a question that carried such important international ramifications, we first have to establish who was this Irish citizen of Basque origin? Why was this particular case raised at the highest levels of government in Ireland? And how had this man come to be at the centre of an international incident between the French and Spanish states? 
Let us begin by saying that the Irish citizen of Basque origin referred to by Deputy Byrne was a man by the name of Iker Galastegui. Iker's associations with Ireland began during the Spanish Civil War, where he and his family were forced to flee their home in the Basque city of Bilbao following the Nazi bombing of Guernica in April 1937. His parents, Margarita and Ellie, along with Iker and his four siblings, set up home in Gibstown, located in the then newly established Mead Gwiltocht. But to find out how the Galastegui family came to live in Mead, we have to look a little further back in history. So we will start at the beginning with the help of historian Brian Hanley, who will give us some idea as to what Ireland was like in the 1930s. Well, you had a state which had achieved partial independence less than a decade before from the British Empire, but was still officially a dominion of that empire. So there was still a governor-general, there were still symbols of the British connection, and you had a society that was bitterly divided by the compromises that were involved in achieving that partial independence. So there had been a civil war, society was very much divided still between those who were anti-treaty and pro-treaty. The pro-treatyites were in government. They were really, in many ways symbolised by their conservatism, by their Catholicism, by their essential reliance on the British market. Not a great deal, in some senses, aside from symbols, had changed. But in economic terms, it's a very poor place. And certainly the working class and the rural poor haven't seen much change since the treaty in 1921-22. The victory of Eamon de Valera and Fianna Fáil in the 1932 general election in many ways it is quite transformative because not only was this the party that was mainly composed of those who had been on the losing side in the Civil War, but by 1932 that party is promising to tear up the treaty with Britain to put into practice the Sinn Féin policies of protectionism and Irish economic development, to break away from the strangled hold of Britain both politically and economically, and also then to move towards the achievement of a republic, which many people perceive as meaning a united Ireland. It certainly means that many of the remaining symbols of British rule are going to be gotten rid of. And what the pro-treatyites fear, and it's a real fear, is that Fianna Fáil will seek revenge for the civil war. So Donald Duffy, who's the Garda commissioner, actually canvassed opinion among leading lights in the army and in the Gardaí about a coup d'etat to prevent Fianna Fáil coming to power if they win the election. That's rejected, but it gives you a sense of how, in many ways, dramatic the position was. And right across Europe, you had these ex-servicemen's organisations who are very often involved as the paramilitary side of fascist movements. And in the Free State, you had an Army Comrades Association established for Free State Army veterans, in part, again, because they thought they might be victimised under a new government, but also to protect common gale activities. And ultimately, by 1932, they're also aggressively challenging those they see as their enemies, particularly the Republican movement. But the intellectual leadership of common gale are also very impressed by European fascism. So they, during 1932-1933, are beginning to examine whether democracy has failed in the free state, whether it is to be a completely new form of governance and society. And they're attracted to fascism, as are other members of the Army Comrades Association. And in 1933, Ono Duffy becomes leader of that body. And under him, they adopt blue shirt as a uniform. They adopt the right arm salute as a greeting. They feel that there is an imminent threat of communism. They believe De Valera is a weak leader who's going to open the door for communism. And that communism is going to come through the IRA. So at one level... You've got party competition 
Fianna Fáil versus Cumann Gael and in part that's an expression of the civil war of a decade previously but you also now have fascism and anti-fascism as a focus for conflict on streets across the free state. In 1933 a variety of organisations merged to become Fine Gael and Ono Duffy is the first president of Fine Gael. So the Fine Gael party allies itself very publicly with the blue shirt movement in this period. A lot of Fine Gael TDs wear blue shirts in Leinster House and during that debate John A. Costello Fine Gael TD says the Hitler shirts as he calls them have been victorious in Germany the black shirts have been victorious in Italy and the blue shirts will be victorious in Ireland Fine Gael Ardesh sends greetings to their prisoners in Arbor Hill because a lot of blue shirts are being locked up delegates stand and give the fascist salute at key moments during speech so historian Brian Hanley has put into context the political situation in Ireland in the 1930s but we have still to establish how the Galisteggies ended up in Ireland. For that, we need to introduce a new protagonist. Now is the time for Basque history enthusiast Stuart Redden to introduce us to Ambrose Martin, one of the protagonists of that period of Irish history and someone who played a crucial role in facilitating the Galistegi family's settlement in Ireland. Ambrose Martin was somewhat of a mysterious figure in Irish history, certainly not a prominent figure within republicanism. He was born in Buenos Aires in Argentina. His mother was originally from Westmeath. When he was about 14 years of age, he was sent back to Ireland to live with a maternal uncle in Westmeath, in Mullingar. Now, when he returned to Ireland, it was in the revolutionary period in Ireland, and a couple of years after he had arrived, the 1916 Rising Cord. Soon after the Rising, Ambrose Martin joined the Republican movement. In around the period 1918-1919, in the Midlands area, he became quite a prominent spokesperson for Sinn Féin. On that basis, he came to the attention of the British authorities. So he was deported from Ireland in 1919 and sent back to Argentina. Now, I suppose at that time, from around the mid to late 1800s, there was quite a substantial Irish immigrant population in Argentina, as well as Basque migrants. So it seems... From the time he returned to Argentina, he got to know quite a lot of Basques. And the understanding is that's where he initially made links with people who would have been close to the Basque nationalist movement. After the War of Independence, after the truce in the summer of 1921, he made the decision to return to Ireland. On his way back, he had been invited to address a meeting in the Basque country in Bilbao to talk about the Irish struggle for independence and also to talk about the women's movement coming on. So he addressed the two meetings in Bilbao in 1922 and it's there that he was formed a lifelong friendship with Ellie Galastegui. Ellie was a prominent Basque nationalist and he was part of the organising committee for those two meetings. So it seems that's where the friendship emerged and sustained then for several decades after that. 
Yes, they met back in 1922. From what I can tell, they were close friends. You can see in the letters they write, good friends going back to 1922. Uh, roughly similar ages, roughly similar political inclinations. And they set up the Irish Iberian Trading Company in 32 with its analog in Bilbao Oskeden, and they were helping Ireland during the Anglo-Irish Trade War for all those years. As Canadian historian Kyle McCraner has just pointed out, Ambrose Martin, a prominent Irish Republican in the 1920s, visited the Basque country, and that is how he came into contact with Ali Galastegui. Kyle has also introduced a new element to the story that is of utmost importance in the Galastegui-Martin relationship when he mentioned their important business and the Anglo-Irish economic war. We ask Brian Hanley to again put this into context and Stuart Redden to link this to our protagonists. Initially, after Fianna Fáil came to power, there was a real sense in Britain that this was going to reignite some kind of Anglo-Irish war. But what Fianna Fáil did, they withheld the payment of land annuities. These annuities dated back to the land war of the 1880s and 1890s. They'd been part of the settlement that that's where Irish farmers had taken out loans essentially from the British state in order to purchase land. Now, there was always a great injustice about this because historically people argue that land should never have been taken by the British state or the landlords in the first place. But these continued to be repaid after the treaty. They were a huge burden on many farmers all across Ireland. And Fianna Fáil said that they would cease paying them and that they would keep that money in Ireland. And they actually did that. Now, privately, the British admitted that this was actually justified in terms of legality. But publicly, they were gravely affronted and they immediately began to put tariffs on Irish produce. Now, Britain was by far the biggest market for Irish goods. Fianna Fáil retaliated with tariffs on British imports. Fianna Fáil also had a policy of building up Irish industry and establishing semi-state bodies. So from 1932 onwards, you had this economic war where people felt immediate hardship because the economy was severely impacted on getting into a fight with a much larger and much more powerful economy. And of course, this impacted dramatically on the rural population, particularly the large farmers, many of whom could no longer export cattle. As it transpired, most large farmers tended to be supporters of Cumann Gael, or what becomes Fine Gael, the pro-treaty party. Fianna Fáil used the economic war to its advantage in some senses by being able to provide jobs in new semi-state industries for urban working class people and also carrying through reforms in terms of land distribution and so on as well. But part of, of Fianna Fáil's project was not just building up Irish industry, but also attract industry into Ireland. So they'd have been very welcoming of people who wanted to trade with Ireland and see this as a way of getting away from the stranglehold of the British economy. Ireland couldn't trade any longer with Britain, so Fianna Fáil attempted to establish new trading routes. And... What came from that was the Irish Iberian Trading Company, which had been set up by prominent figures within Fianna Fáil and also had the assistance of the Irish ambassador to Spain, Leopold Kearney, and the Fianna Fáil TD was on the board of directors of the company. That company traded with Spain in association with a company that L.A. Galastegui was a director of in Bilbao, which was called Euskaran. They had an office in Dame Street. They were distributing kind of vegetables and some poultry and eggs. They had a distribution centre in the markets area on the north side of Dublin. Ellie Galastegui had money tied up in that company, but when the Spanish Civil War broke out, he was unable to access that money. 
This time Stuart Redden has introduced a new element to the story, the Spanish Civil War. So now we have an idea of the socio-political situation of the newly formed Irish state in the 1930s and how Irish and international politics intermingled during the rise of fascism across Europe. It was during this period that an army coup d'etat took place in Spain and we will now hear Brian Hanley explain how the subsequent war in Spain after the coup and the fight against fascism impacted on Irish politics. Popular opinion across Catholic Ireland and Nationalist Ireland was overwhelmingly pro-Franco and there were a number of reasons for that. The Irish Catholic Church had become very obsessed with the threat of communism. Even though there was a very weak communist movement in Ireland, it was a theme that was returned to again and again in Lenten pastorals and in sermons and so on. And in fact, there'd been physical attacks on communists at the behest of Catholic priests in the early 1930s. So when the conflict in Spain erupted, it was perceived in Catholic Ireland as a war between antichrists and Christ, between believers and non-believers, between atheists who wanted to destroy churches and slaughter priests and nuns and those who wanted to oppose them. There was also historic links with Spain going back to the 1600s, which were played on the belief that Spain had been our allies in the dark days of English rule and that for God in Spain was a slogan which still applied. So popular opinion was very, very much pro-Franco and that was whipped up by the Catholic Church, was very enthusiastically pro the right wing in Spain, but also by the Irish Independent newspaper, which was extremely pro-Franco and which reported every allegation of the massacre of priests and nuns and so on by the Spanish Republicans. So in the summer of 1936, the atmosphere across the Free State is very much pro-Franco. And on the Irish right, people take advantage of that. So you see huge rallies by what's called the Irish Christian Front, which is set up to support the Spanish fascists and which draws thousands of people to rallies in Dublin and Cork and elsewhere and which ultimately aims to send money to aid the Spanish nationalist cause and so on and thousands of pounds are collected. The war in Spain put the Fianna Fáil government in a difficult position because firstly they wanted to maintain a position of neutrality and non-intervention similar to Britain and France and that meant not taking sides. So even though at a local level you see some Fianna Fáil common and individuals within Fianna Fáil want to go along with the pro-Franco mood. The Fianna Fáil party has a position of neutrality and they don't recognise Franco only takes power. So they continue to officially recognise the Republican government in Spain. Fine Gael are pro-Franco and demand that Franco be recognised. And in some ways that makes it easier for de Valera to hold the line in his own party because his mortal enemies are so enthusiastically pro-Franco. And in the hysterical anti-communist atmosphere that prevailed in the free state. Some people on the Republican left realised that if you could have a Basque priest speaking in favour of the Republican Ireland, it would go some way to countering the argument that this was a war about religion. And in January 1937, Father Ramon Laborda, who was a Jesuit priest, did come. And there was a rally in Dublin at the Gaiety called in support of the Spanish Republic. And he was a a keynote speaker, very much making the argument that this was not a war about religion. And he went through the position of the Basque clergy and, and mentioned that Basque priests had, in fact, been killed by the nationalists. The Catholic press was scathing about Laborda and his visit. The Catholic hierarchy tried to put pressure on him and on the Jesuits to essentially get him out of Ireland. And where did our protagonists stand on all this? How were they involved in these events? Kyle and Stuart will place our protagonists in context. 
when in 37, when Basque priest Ramon Laborda came to Dublin during the Spanish Civil War to try to sway the Irish public in favor of the Spanish Second Republic. Ambrose Martin was the one in Dublin helping translate his speeches and helping him around Dublin. There were certain prominent figures who publicly denounced any support that might be offered to the Spanish Republic. One of them was the Fine Gael TD, Patrick Belton, who, during a debate in that sense about Ireland's stance in relation to the Spanish Republic, in reference to the Irish Iberian Trading Company, over denounced the company for continuing to trade with the Spanish Republic and accused it of feeding the Red Soldiers of Antichrist in Spain. And he described Ambrose Martin as one of the most pronounced and prominent communists in the country. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. In April 1937, the Nazi Condor Legion bombed the Basque town of Guernica. It was considered the first time that a civilian population had been carpet-bombed from the air and it would prove to be a precursor to the type of war conducted just a few years later in the Second World War. Historian Brian Hanley discusses the impact the bombing had on Irish public opinion. widespread coverage of the carnage at Guernica. In fact, the IRA's newspaper on Fublock that actually carried a condemnation of the bombing of Guernica and a report on it. And it's also reported widely in the mainstream press as well. And it does, in fact, in many ways, go a long way to countering the idea that this is simply a religious war. It is the Irish Times and the Irish press in particular basically portray the bombing as it was as a terrorist act. The Irish Independent is more embarrassed and the Catholic press essentially argues that this is lies, that this is put up by Republicans and Communists, that they've created this themselves in order to make the nationalist side look bad. But certainly it's widely reported and people are aware that an atrocity has happened. Following the bombing, there was a mass evacuation of the civilian population in the Basque country. Nimbe Galastegi, the youngest of the Galastegis, 
recollects for us how, as a two-year-old child, she and her family made their way to Ireland. However, at that time, those travelling to Ireland from Europe were required to have visas to enter, and Kyle will now explain how that worked out for the Galisteggies. Galisteggi has a bunch of money waiting for him in Dublin uh, that the company has generated, and Ambrose Martin is the one who vouches for the Galisteggi family visa to come to Ireland. My father and my two eldest brothers came to Ireland first because my father had done business with Ireland. And my mother and my sister and myself and the mate that we had arrived by ourselves. And my mother, of course, didn't speak a word of English. And we landed and she was desperate because my father wasn't there to meet us and she didn't know what to do. And my father was... There must be some sort of a hill above Cove, is there? I've never been down there. And he was up there with the boys. They said, we'll go up there and watch the ship arrive. And they missed it somehow, and they didn't come down. The Galisteggies settled in Gibstown, County Meath, and now Stuart Redden will provide us with some detail as to what Gibstown was like at the time, and we'll discuss another new historical element to the story, that of the Land Commission. The Land Commission has a long history, but effectively was set up in the aftermath of the land wars in the late 1800s in Ireland, was set up initially to fix rents, to establish a, might be termed, fair rents, so to speak. But its remit was widened in the subsequent years, and it was the body that was responsible for the redistribution of land in Ireland. The Land Commission was reconstituted after the treaty, and it continued in its remit of redistributing land. After Fianna Fáil came to power then in 1932, in one sense, because you've had the Wall Street crash and the international financial crisis, which in some ways cut off the option of immigration for a lot of people, particularly in the west of Ireland, where there had been a long history uh, since the famine of immigration to the United States. At that time as well, Fianna Fáil had a policy, which you might term the Gaelicisation of Irish society, to, so to promote greater use of the Irish language and promote Irish culture. Both of those combined congestion on the western seaboard and the promotion of the Irish language resulted in Fianna Fáil deciding to try and establish Gaeltox outside of the west coast. And there was a large tract of land identified near Trim in County Mead, in Rathcarn and in Gibstown, uh, Ballyon Gibb. So what they did effectively was to move families from Kerry, Connemara and Donegal to County Mead and establish a Gaeltoc. And those families were provided with plots of 22 acres, of which would have been quite good land, certainly by comparison to the land on the West Coast. Arguably, the plots weren't big enough, or the farms weren't big enough with 22 acres to make them economically viable for, for the families. But that's where Gibstown community or that Gaeltoc came from. There were some objections locally because what was considered to be effectively outsiders coming in and taking all the good land and also the fact that people who were coming from the West Coast spoke Irish and there was also a sense that Fianna Fáil had hand-picked the families. So we have a newly created environment. Let's take an opportunity to walk through the remains of the house where the Galisteggies lived with local resident Maureen Shields, whose families were neighbours of the Galisteggies while at the same time, Nimbe will take us on a trip down memory lane. I don't remember them being here, because I was born in 51 and they were gone at that stage. But as a child growing up, 
all I ever heard about was the Galastickies. They never died, even though they weren't in Gippstown. The memory of them was kept alive because people were always talking about them. And I remember as a child, and our house is only directly across from the castle, like my father would have talked about them, my uncle Eddie down in Donegal, especially him, because he was older, he talked about them a lot. And my aunt Berndette, who's still alive, was in the same class as Nimba. And I think it was because my family were, you know, I suppose my father's family were very Republican. And there was that connection, I think, just that, I suppose, memory of people believing in freedom. And they remembered these people on their own and trying to make a life for themselves here in Ireland. You know, the Gaeltach people came in 37 and they came in 37. So they were both kind of strangers in a new land. That's why they gelled together. Because there were very few foreigners living in Ireland at the time. And we were in what they called the big house. There was the castle, which we did not live in because it had been burned. But there was what was a kind of a guest house, an eight-bedroom guest house next to it. And that's where we lived. This was their home. So this, this was so familiar as children growing up here. Oh, it's massive. Like, and, and, I mean, when you think of the house is gone, you know, so there was a lot of people employed here. There was woods. It was full of trees. There was a big garden and we had chickens and cows and pigs and all sorts of things. These have already been all the sheds now. When you look at it now and it's so derelict, it's awful sad. Can you imagine when it was, when it was in good order, like, and a working place? Yeah. So how was the Galastegi family received in the newly created community in rural Ireland? Let us hear what Stuart found out about this. Their arrival in Ireland probably didn't cause much of a reaction. I mean, it was one family, five kids, they're living in County Mead. And Ellie Galastegi has money. He's able to support himself through the money that he had from the trading company and his association with Ambrose Martin. So Ambrose Martin provides him with somewhere to stay, which is in Gibbstown in County Mead. And the fact that when that Geltock had been set up, there was no actual school for the children to attend. The only school they could attend was the local primary school, which was through English, and a lot of the kids had no English. So they had attempted to set up a school, but there was no premises. So Ellie Galastegi offered rooms in Gibbstown House to the local community to use as a school, effectively. That certainly helped in terms of them integrating because it was very well received. Ellie himself, given his involvement in the Basque nationalist movement and in the Basque language and culture, he was someone who was very conscious of the promotion of native cultures. So his children attended the local school, learned to speak Irish. The three boys were involved in the local GEA team girls involved in the Irish dance, won prizes at Feshina. So they were well integrated into the local community. Ellie, he seemed to have a kind of an open house and they were visited by all sorts of people and kind of prominent people within the Irish language movement, within political field, cultural field, and just local people. It seemed to be quite a hive of activity. Seemingly, none of the new arrivals, native Irish speakers or Basques, were too happy about attending an English-speaking school. So the Galastagis initially provided the space for an Irish-language school within their home and later facilitated the building of the school in the grounds of the castle. Again, Maureen and Nimbe walk us through that time and place. 
When the people came to Gippstown from Kerry, Donegal and Mayo, this is where they went to school. Galastickies gave them, yeah, because there was no school for them. The school in Gippstown was two classrooms, but we learned everything through Irish. And it's extraordinary when you think of the five children going to school in Gippstown, all their education through Irish. And, and how even years later, when Lander and Eker, when they came to, after all them years, could still sing their Irish songs. I suppose you never forget the days of your childhood. This is where they would have ran around, yeah, as small children, going to school here. So they would have been in, in these rooms. And walk around. We'll go around the front now. And you can get the date then, you can see 1940 something then. Yeah. 1941. But while the Basques were warmly welcomed by the local community, how did the Irish state respond to the arrival of these war refugees from the Basque country? Stuart Redden will talk us through that. G2, Irish Army's intelligence division, were responsible for gathering intelligence on what were considered to be threats to the state, particularly from outside. So they would have had an interest, obviously, in a group of Basques arriving. It seems from the intelligence reports, and they're quite detailed. I mean, I was quite surprised at the level of detail and the level of surveillance that we're under at that time. But the only real information relating to Ellie Galastegui in particular was that he was considered to be quite close to people within the Irish language movement. So he didn't seem to have come to much attention of military intelligence services but he was certainly a person of note in the sense that he or had a lot of contacts with people within the language movement who obviously, some of whom would have been prominent Republicans as well. But they didn't seem too concerned that he represented any threat to the security of the state. So they didn't keep him under significant surveillance. They did intercept some letters, quite poignant letters in some cases, there was letters intercepted between him and Ambrose Martin. I suppose in some ways shows the life of the refugee. He writes to Ambrose Martin about the death of his mother and obviously he couldn't leave Ireland to attend the funeral. It also reports on the fact that his wife was very ill in hospital. So there's kind of poignant in that archive where you see a kind of a, the personal side of his life as well. And that later on there was quite a degree of correspondence between him and Ambrose Martin about the sale of that house. So in the first three years that Eli Galastegui was here, he didn't really come to the attention of military intelligence or the Gardaí. However, that changed somewhat in July 1940 when a group of Basques landed in Cove Harbour. They had fled from... The Nazis invaded France. They had to get out of there pretty fast because had they been discovered, they would have been handed back to Franco's forces and likely would have faced execution. So they had to get out of there quick. So they ended up hiring a lobster boat in the Basque town of Donabani and in the French Basque country. So after a pretty arduous journey, they were given permission to land by the Gardaí in Cove and then they travelled to County Mead to the Galastegis. That caused quite a stir because some of these were quite prominent Basque nationalists and the Gardaí 
when they gave them permission to land, did actually seize some documents. Their arrival obviously caused quite a stir with the Spanish embassy who sought their immediate extradition to Spain. It also resulted in quite a degree of surveillance on the group. Their post was intercepted and they would have been followed to a certain extent, but particularly the post. I mean, all of their mail was intercepted and copied and translated. And So there was certain concerns about who they were linking up with politically in Ireland, but by around 1942, the military intelligence concluded that the group hadn't really concerned themselves with Irish political matters. And that while this group were strongly hostile to Franco, that they were not, as military intelligence described, or communist and were on good terms with various clergy, which seemed to satisfy the Irish military intelligence. So the new arrivals were on good terms with the clergy, which seems to have been enough to satisfy the intelligence services of their harmless nature towards the Irish state. Time to go back to the Galisteggies. As we have heard from Maureen, the Galisteggies left a lasting mark on the history of Gibbstown, and equally, Gibbstown left its mark on the Galisteggies. But the pull from the Basque country, felt by the sons of Ellie and Margarita, was too much to resist. Nimbe brings us back to that time. Oh, we all have very fond memories of Ireland. We were all very happy growing up here. And my sister and I just thought we were the same as all the other little local kids. When I was an American, people would say where you were from. I always said Ireland. And then if it came out, like, where were you born? Then I would say in the Basque country. To tell you the truth, I didn't have any pull towards the Basque country. Lander, Iker and Dunai, the boys, they felt a pull. I guess because they were older and they also understood the politics of why we were in Ireland and what my father and mother had sacrificed. Arginia and I, Arginia, my sister, I don't think we realised it. You know, it was... Uh, we were too young when the change was made and all I remembered growing up was Gibstown. You know, I didn't, I didn't remember Bilbao at all. And going to an all-Irish school, it was, you know, uh, my sister and I picked it up Irish so quickly... But for them, it was probably a bit of a struggle. So I think that's why they feel a lot stronger about the Basque situation. It was time for the Galisteggies to begin their long journey back home to the Basque country. Now we will hear about Iker's return to his beloved home from his daughter, Laura, and his sister, Nimbe. My father, Iker, and uh, my mother, Maite, they met in Bilbao around... 1952. Iker was living then in Ireland, but he started going back to the Basque country. So in 1952, was with some other friend also, travelling from Ireland. Well, Iker, he was the first of our family to go back. When he went with a bunch of his friends from university, they went and, and uh, they crossed over the border, but Iker went over the mountains, smuggled in. It is obvious from both Nimbe and Laura's recollections that Iker could not return to the Spanish side of the Basque country. But why was that the case and how did this affect Iker? Laura Galastegui again. My grandfather, Elie Galastegui, was always interested in politics and he was a big Basque nationalist. But he was also somebody who felt that social justice was very important and had very clear ideas and also very 
egalitarian ideas was women also. He created a strong women movement within the Basque Nationalist Party. So Iker was exiled for a lot of his life, first as a child because of his father's politics and the different situations in the Basque country and things, and then later himself as an adult because of his own politics. So he was exiled for most of his life. See, Iker's politics came from his father's politics and from the situation he lived. The politics of my father came very much from what he lived when he was in Ireland, but also before when he was in Mexico in, uh, as a kid. And all the movements they had to do also because his father couldn't live in the Egualde, in the Spanish-governed uh, Basque country. Iker's got married in 1962 with my mother and in the French side of the Basque country, and my mother had to go to the French side of the Basque country, although she's initially from the Spanish side, she's from near Bilbao. She had to move to the French side to be able to live with Iker because he couldn't cross the border at the time when Frank was living. My father and mother lived in the area in 1962, Dory just mentioned some details which bring us back to the beginning of our story. It was in 1962 that the Spanish government sought to have Iker Galastegui extradited from France to Spain. As Iker was an Irish citizen, this triggered the question by TD Joseph Byrne and a subsequent reply by Antishuk Sean Lamas. Is this Irish citizen of Basque origin going to be made a plaything between de Gaulle and Franco? Well, uh, representations about the case were immediately made to the French authorities by the Irish Embassy in Paris and subsequently the embassy had been informed that Mr. Galastegui could not be permitted uh, to continue to reside on the Spanish frontier but that in deference to its representations his, uh, his place of residence was being changed again to a district likely to be more acceptable to him. In November 1962, he was removed from the Basque provinces in, in the south of France to the border with Germany. And then from there, he was moved to another part, to another area in France also. So very early on in their marriage, my father and mother had to be moved around. And then eventually they ended up living in Paris for a long time because they weren't allowed to live in the, the border uh, provinces of France. But I don't remember him talking about it as a negative aspect. Um, I suppose also to us, to his children, he wouldn't tell us about negative aspects. So there was always like some uh, anecdotes that they would tell in the different places that they lived in and things like that. And and they had good uh, good memories of all the people who helped them uh, while they were away. And also of, uh, some memories of the people who were watching them. I suppose he just looked at it from the positive side. Speaker, my father loved Ireland. I mean, for my father, Ireland was like a second home. He always felt Irish also. He always remembered very Kinley all his time in Ireland. He built very strong relationships during that time and their relationships that continued all the way to his death. On the 12th of February 2018, Iker Galastegui died peacefully at his home in Algarta, aged 91. 
His was a full life, surviving two dictatorships, being an active militant and living on the run and in exile in several countries. He dedicated his entire life to the struggle for an independent Basque country, but he never forgot Ireland. Iker recalled his time in Ireland with great fondness, and it was obvious that he retained a deep affinity with its people and struggles. It is of such lives that history is made. Fleeing War, Basque Refugees in Ireland is produced by Ignacio Irigoyen and Stuart Redden with the participation of historians Brian Hanley and Kyle McCrenner as well as several members of the Galastegi family. Thank you also to Maureen Shields for her contributions to this project. Narration was provided by historian Finn Dwyer with historical representations by Jack Byrne and Alan Bradish. This program was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television license fee. Again, I would like to thank Ignacio Irigoyen and Stuart Redden for permission to share this with you. I'll be back, as I said at the start, on Monday week. Until then, Sloan. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.